Look at 2 Kings chapter 5. To this point, we read about the prophet Elisha performing miracles for a lowly widow, a prominent woman, and a school of prophets. However, all these people were from Israel. They were God's chosen and favored people. But Elisha was getting ready to meet a man named Naaman, a commander of a nation's army that often warred against Israel. He was a Gentile he was an outsider he shouldn't have got what he's getting ready to get from God but aren't you glad that God looks at the outsiders because we were all Gentiles most of us unless you was born an Israelite but let's read one verse about him before I preach about him 2nd Kings chapter 5 verse 1 Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He had a lot going for him, but he was a leper. He had a good job, a good career, but he was a leper. Ooh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. But I'm going to help somebody today because you can have a lot going for you and still be bound by something in your life. But I'm going to preach to you, Naaman. There's a river. Come on, somebody. Naaman, I know you got leprosy. I know you're bound. I know you don't know how it's going to happen, but Naaman, there is a... Somebody better shout with me for a moment. Naaman, there is a place. Naaman, there is a river. There's a river. It's all right. There's a river. God, I feel your anointing. God, I feel your power in this place. God, there's no telling what you're getting ready to do. You're getting ready to let us all know that if we got struggles, it's all right. There's a river. God, if we've been bound, it's all right. There's a river. God, if we're in the middle of a season, we don't understand what's going to happen. There is a river in Jesus' name. Look at your neighbor and tell them there's a river. There's a river. There's a river. You may be seated this morning. A shadow has set upon American society. The Christian faith is in decline. Spiritual indifference is everywhere. Property, acquisition, wealth increase, and more possessions matter to people obsessed with stuff and dis disinterested in God. Addiction is up. Hate is promoted. Divorce is expected. The sanctity of marriage isn't valued. And human life is no longer treasured. All the while, the gospel is under attack. The authority of the Bible is questioned. And universalism is suddenly in vogue. No one is a sinner anymore. 
No one will be lost because the idea of judgment is outdated and barbaric. And the result is people who love only themselves, who are boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful, who consider nothing sacred. They are unloving and unforgiving, slandering others, betraying friends because they are reckless and puffed up with pride. They are cruel and hate what is good. And because they have no self-control, they will love pleasure rather than God. This is the current moral climate of our world. And it's not good news, but it's not new news. Everybody's telling us the world is in bad shape, and it is. The world is in bad shape. But can I tell you that the world has always been in pretty bad shape. The spiritual landscape of 18th century America didn't seem like favorable conditions for revival. Francis Asbury, a Methodist bishop, filed this gloomy report in 1794. In the American frontier, not one in a hundred came here to get religion, but rather to get plenty of good land. Andrew Fulton, a visiting Presbyterian missionary from Scotland, reported that there are few religious people in the newly formed towns in this western colony. The nation was suffering from a spiritual drought, but then something remarkable happened. A river showed up in Kentucky. The Cane Ridge Church met in an unassuming building on the side of a large hill. The pastor, a Presbyterian by the name of Barton W. Stone, was one of dozens of church leaders who had been preparing for revival. They met regularly for prayer and called churches to gather for extended times of communion. In those days, Christians used to gather for special communion services in which three or more days of, of services would be capped off by the sharing of the Lord's Supper. So they planned and they started expecting an awakening and a revival. The simple meeting house that they, had, that they had could accommodate some 500 people. So anticipating a significant crowd, the leaders constructed a large tent. It quickly proved inadequate. People began arriving on August the 6th, 1801. And it was estimated that between 10,000 and 25,000 worshipers gathered over the next three days. Look at this. They poured out of the hills. They arrived by wagon, on foot, and on horseback. They listened to sermons. They worshiped and received communion and experienced personal renewal. There was no shortage of weeping and repenting. The Cane Ridge Communion, stated one by one historian, was arguably the most important religious one of the most important religious gatherings in all of American history. It ignited the explosion, soon reaching nearly every corner of American life. For decades, the prayer of camp meetings and revival across the land was this, Lord, make it like Cane Ridge. Spiritual revival broke out, spreading across the frontier like a spring shower. Churches begin to grow, and Christians begin to influence society instead of society influencing Christians. It was reported that church attendance increased after the Cane Ridge revival. It was reported that social reforms began because somebody had enough sense to say the climate might not be right for revival, but Naaman, there is going to be a river in the middle of what's going on around us. 
Another historic revival happened early in the 20th century in Wales. 100,000 people came to Christ in less than a year. And it's reported that when this revival started, that bars started shutting down. They had to close their doors. You know why? They didn't have no more business. The magistrates saw their courts emptied of criminals because there was no more criminals. I'm talking about naming. There is a river. It may not look good. The conditions may not be right. But naming, there is a river. There's a river. There's a river. Miners even had to retrain the mules that worked in the coal mines. Why is that? Because many of the animals have been trained to respond to vulgar commands. But when the men got cleaned up, so did, the, so did their mules. Because there's a revival. The men and the mules had to learn a new vocabulary. What happened to spark these revivals? Someone stopped complaining about the conditions and got a burden to make a difference. That's it. Somebody said, I know it doesn't look good. I'm tired of people running around saying the sky is falling. The sky is falling. God is coming back one day. Jesus Christ is coming back. But until he comes back, there's going to be a, there's going to be a revival and there's going to be a river. Someone shout, there is a river. This scripture has changed my mindset, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7. For, their mis for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The mystery of lawlessness is Satan's program of sin. And the one now restraining is the Holy Spirit working through the church. And until God removes his church out of the world at the rapture, the church and individual Christians operating with the Holy Spirit will affect the expansion of sin in our lives, our families, and the broader society. So once again, I get it. The conditions don't seem favorable. But God wants there to be a river in the middle of despair and hopelessness. I get it. The world's not getting better. It's getting darker. But is there a church that will push back against lawlessness and say, we're going to shut some things down around here because there is a revival? There's a revival. Naaman, there is a river. John 7, 37 through 39. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Notice, if anyone is thirsty. Not a select few, not just ethnicity does not matter. Income level is of no importance. Background checks will not be made. There is only one qualification. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Not if anyone is worthy. Not if anyone has the right pedigree. Not if anyone is qualified. If anyone's thirsty. If anyone's got a burden or desire to know him, if you're thirsty. All that is needed is an emission of thirst. And there isn't but one place to fully quench that thirst, and that's in the presence of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Verses 38 through 39, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we 
when we show up and we quench our thirst in his presence, a river of living water starts flowing out of our lives, becoming a source of strength and life for those around us. That's what revival looks like in the Bible. Go read it. Revival is a river flowing out to a dry and thirsty land. That's why Ezekiel 47 says, whatever the river touches lives. There should be a flow of a river that comes out of our lives. You can't just come up here and say, God, I surrender everything to you and nothing happened. When you surrender everything, there's a river that flows out of your life that helps other people around you. The teenager who is in need of friends, there is a river. The elder who is thirsty for hope, there is a river. The heartbroken person who needs a second chance, there is a a river. The shame-filled person who needs acceptance and forgiveness, there is a river. The person who is tired of being bound, there is a river. The person who is grieving, there is a river. There is a river and there is hope. Name and there is a river. In our text, we, we read about a man by the name of Naaman. One writer described him this way. He was the commander of a mighty army. Men took orders from him, feared him, and showed him respect and honor. He had position, prestige, power, and influence. He had a good name, was well-respected and trusted by his king, which was unheard of in those days. Most military leaders were feared by their kings. He was a man of great courage and, and had won many battles. Naaman was the ultimate success story, capable, respected, and well-liked. He was highly regarded in society, however it says, but he was a leper. Naaman looked like he had everything going for him, and he had everything in order. But Naaman was a leper. Leprosy in biblical days was a skin disease that slowly spread, bringing about lesions, sores, and ultimately deformity and death. Back then, leprosy was an incurable disease. So despite Naaman's education, he's a leper. Despite Naaman's notoriety, he's still a leper. Despite his financial success, he's a leper despite rewards and plaques and accolades and recognition Naaman you're still a leper and of course it affected Naaman physically because of the breakouts all over his skin that were eating his flesh alive but it also affected him relationally because leprosy was an infectious disease it was contagious so if you got close to him you could catch leprosy it was like COVID they was just passing it around you could catch it There's so many things going through my mind right now. So as this disease progressed, people had to stay away from him so they would not also become a leper, meaning he couldn't interact normally with his family or friends. It was too dangerous. That's why, that's why it says in the Mosaic Law that, that if a leper came around, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine having an issue? And when you show up in a room, you got to tell people, unclean, unworthy. Look, Naaman, you're a general, but you're also a leper. So at the same time, Naaman, you're captain and you're a conqueror, but you're also a castaway. 
And it doesn't stop with just the physical or relational issues. But most importantly, leprosy is tied to something gone wrong spiritually. Bible scholars tell us that leprosy is used in Scripture as a symbol of sin. Just like with sin, people can't hide the results of their disease forever. And that's a revelation in itself. Sin will find a way to break out into your life to where it impacts everything around you. If it's not dealt with, it will eventually devastate our lives, destroying our families, separating us from God, and we become outcast. That's what sin can do to us, and that's what leprosy did to Naaman. Think about it. This man with everything, he has everything right, but he has one thing wrong. What is that one thing in your life that could mess up all the good stuff that you got in your life? Maybe you're successful in your career or with your finances or with your educational achievements. And perhaps you have an impressive resume. But there's one thing that you dare not to put on that resume because it's just messing you up. It's keeping you up at night. You cannot function like you should be able to function because there's leprosy. It's an incurable situation, and you feel like, I don't know, never know how I'm going to break away from it. I don't ever know how I'm going to get set free. I don't ever know how it's going to be dealt with in my life. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to get better and be made right. That was Damon's reality. That was his scenario. He was a leper. The footnote of his life was he was a leper. I know a lot of people, it's got a title by their name, but it says, but they are a leper. Can I tell you, there's times in my life that I, I, I pick up on something in my life, and it may not even be something that, that others say is, is that bad, but I'll pick up on it and be like, hold on, I've got to get that out of my life because that can devastate me. Because it's the small foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little sins that we don't deal with that end up becoming big deals in our life. And it's possible for it to say, Josh Payne, the pastor, but he's a leper. It's easy. It's easy to say Josh Payne, a great father, but he's a leper. Josh Payne, great husband, but he's a leper. And I may conceal it, but at some point it's going to start taking over my life. And if God doesn't intervene, then Naaman will die of leprosy. He needs a miracle. He is desperate. His world is turned upside down. He's at the end of his rope just reaching for hope. I wrote that down. I did. I, I really, I said, when I wrote it, I, I looked in the mirror. I said, man, you a rapper. <laughs> Brother Brandon, you want me to be on your album? I'm ready. <laughs> I think I'm going to say it again. It was so good. His world is turned upside down. He's at the end of his rope, just reaching for hope. And guess who his hope dealer is? She wasn't important. She wasn't influential. She wasn't a great theologian. She was just a servant from Israel, captured in battle, who was brought to serve Naaman's wife. Yet it would be the kindness of this girl and her confidence in the God of Israel that would turn Naaman's life around. 2 Kings 5 and 3, she said to her, her mistress, would that my Lord, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This woman said, look, I know, I know Naaman's at the end of his rope, 
But let me give him a little bit of hope. There is a prophet in Samaria that if Naaman can get with him, this prophet can tell him how to cure his leprosy. We better have somebody in our life. They may not have a name. They may not have notoriety. But they are spiritually connected enough to bring divine revelation and deliverance into our life. People may look at them and be like they're nobody. But they're connected. They know how to get name into the river. Look. Naaman couldn't fix himself. His situation was hopeless until somebody said, don't give up yet, Naaman. I know somebody. And I've showed up to tell somebody, if you walked in here and you're hopeless, I've come to tell you, don't give up just yet. I know somebody. And his name ain't Josh Payne. His name is Jesus Christ. I want to be a hope dealer today. I want to tell somebody, you can make it. Don't you quit yet. There is still hope. She was a little girl, a nobody in terms of her position and age, but she knew somebody. She had a connection that could change this man's world and life. God has you where he has you because there's a name and he intends for you to help. I'm preaching to somebody. So don't look at the condition they're in when they show up. Give them the river. Tell them there is a place that they can find in Christ. That they can find hope. Stop disqualifying yourself. Let me tell you what the river is made up of. I believe the river, the church, is not made up of spiritual giants. Only broken men and women that can lead others to the river. The rejected ones. The broken ones, the outcasts, the ones that don't fit in, the ones who carry the scars of their abuse, but they are not defined by them. We are just beggars leading other beggars to bread. We found bread, and we want other people to know there's a river. There's nothing important about us. We got a river. We don't have it all together, but we got a river. We know somebody. Naaman, there's a river, Romans, Romans 10 and 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, there are people out there who need to hear us talk about Jesus Christ. He's been too good. I read a story about a salesman who become depressed. He was having a hard time getting people to buy his products. So he went to a man he respected to share his troubles. He told his friend, he said, I guess, I guess you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. His friend smiled at him and said, son, your job isn't to make them drink. Your job is to make them thirsty. You got to stop focusing on making them drink. Just make them thirsty. Talk about Jesus so much that they say, man, what are they talking about? What happened in their life? What has God done in their life? To make people thirsty, you don't have to have great Bible knowledge. It doesn't require you to be an excellent speaker or teacher. God wants us to be sought and create thirst in people's lives. I'm going to give you three steps. How do I make people thirsty? Number one, find out if they got an issue. Find out. See, a lot of us, we, we want to run from people's issues. You find somebody with a bad enough issue, they thirsty. When you find them with this issue, the second thing we got to do is, 
is do we believe that Jesus can help their issue? We find them, they got an issue. Do we believe that Jesus can help them with their issue? Then thirdly, we have to speak up and tell them about the Jesus that can help them with their issue. Well, that's revelatory, ain't it? That's revelatory. Find somebody with an issue. Do we believe Jesus can help them with their issue? Tell them about the Jesus that can help them with their issue. Then we become an evangelist. And if we're willing to do that, then we could change someone's life for eternity. I wish someone in here would let God know right now, I haven't done all I can do just yet. I wish somebody in this place would realize that you haven't reached all the people that God has intended for you to reach. I wish someone would let God know, I'm getting ready to reach more people. I'm going to fill up a whole row. I'm getting ready to get people into the gospel. I'm getting ready to find people with issues and help them. I'm getting ready. 21 minutes. Look, I'm going to be done. And I'm going to be done at 30 minutes. So Naaman goes looking for God, and he visits the prophet Elisha. Bear in mind, Naaman is an important man. He's showing up to Elisha's courtyard, accompanied by a military guard of horses and chariots, bearing expensive gifts of gold, silver, and precious garments. And Naaman expects Elisha to be impressed. He expects Elisha to be honored to receive him. He expects Elisha to show him the respect that he deserves, but it doesn't happen. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet Naaman. I love it. He said, Naaman, I don't care who you are. Instead, we read in 2 Kings 5 and 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Why did Elisha send a messenger? Because it was never about the prophet. It was always about the river. Because if Elisha goes out and tells him about the river, then the man of God will say, Elisha healed me. Elisha said, I'm going to send the messenger, the servant, so that Naaman will know it's about the God of the river, and it's not about the prophet of the river. I almost kicked my leg up on that. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm, I almost kicked it up. I almost did. It was close, but I felt it. I felt it. I felt it. Naaman, there's a river that could take care of your issue. But instead of excitement, Naaman is furious. How dare this prophet treat me this way? Who does he think he is? I'm Captain Naaman. And the word says he went in rage, saying, I thought he, was, he will surely come to meet me, come out to meet me and stand and call on the name of the Lord of God and wave his hand over me. Hocus pocus, abracadocus. And he would cure my leprosy thought the man of God would come out there with his mantle and look at me and say, Naaman, you got leprosy. I thought, that's what I thought. That's what Naaman said. He said, I thought, I thought he was going to come, he was going to come wave his hand over me and I was going to be hit, healed. Then Naaman says this, he said, are not the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? You see, there are two rivers in Damascus with clean water. Wait a minute. Naaman, let's get some of this straight. Didn't you come here because you were dirty? <laughs> Naaman, you showed up because you got an issue and your life is muddy. But you're upset about a, a little mud in the river. So watch this. The reason why Naaman had issues with the Jordan is because he didn't understand Jordan. 
See, for him, it was a muddy river. But for Elisha, it was a place where God did miracles. The Jordan was where, where Joshua told, told the priest, bring the Ark of the Covenant, stand in the middle of Jordan. And when they did, the river dried up and they children of Israel walked across on dry land. This is the place that Elijah and Elisha had a miracle take place in their life. Jesus would be baptized in the Jordan River. If Naaman only understood the Jordan, he would have seen more than mud and dirt. He would have seen a place where God shows up and shows off. So here it is. I don't want anybody, especially live stream, to misinterpret what I'm trying to say. There is nothing wrong. There's no flaws and there's no mud when it comes to the Holy Spirit. It's holy. It's flawless. But the river church can seem muddy at times. You know why? Because this is a church made up of real people with real problems. It can seem muddy. There can be contention. There can be division. But we embrace confrontation as long as it leads back to unity. Because we understand that the river can be muddy because it's made up of flawed people. And I love what Brother Spikes used to say, and I told our volunteers, if you find a perfect church, don't go, you'll mess it up. Because if we want to be honest today, there ain't nobody in this place perfect. But if the river's been good to you, if you found deliverance and healing and hope, it may be a little muddy, but my life is a little muddy. It doesn't matter. I just need real people. It can be a little muddy. I've witnessed God show up here. I've seen people healed and delivered and set free. It might be a little muddy, but it's my river. In 2020, God told me, he told me, Brother William, Brother Hightower, he told me, he said, the river's going to be a place where life slows down for people, where people walk in here and their life is messed up, and they get into the river, and all of a sudden hope starts to, to form in their life. And I love what James H. Augie says about the church. The church is not made, the church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcast may come in. It is not a palace with gate attendants and challenging sentinels along the entranceways holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and trouble may find rest and take counsel together. Naaman, I've come to release it into the spirit realm. Naaman, it may be muddy, but there is a river. Come on, I want the enemy to send everybody you've done with, everybody you've given up hope on, I'm talking to the enemy. Send them here. Send us your trash, and the river will send back out. There's a place, Naaman. There's a place, Naaman. Musicians, you can get ready. Naaman. Naaman, there's a river, but Naaman wants to do it his way. But sometimes God allows us to go through things to get us on his terms because sometimes our terms won't work. There's no other answer, Naaman. You're not going to be healed unless you follow God. So Naaman's mad and his servant, his servant comes to him and says this in 2 Kings 5, 13 through 14. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? You know what he was saying, Naaman? It's really simple. He said, go down to the Jordan River, and you're going to be made whole. You're going to be clean. So I can tell you what the servant was saying in a respectful way. Naaman, you can be prideful and die with leprosy. Or you can take a simple step of faith and be healed. 
Name it. You can try to figure it out in your mind. You can play it out how you think it should go and what you think should happen. Or you can just step in the river. Say, I don't want to die with my leprosy. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the, in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of little child. And he was clean. Don't let your pride keep you from solving your problem. What is your leprosy? Because Naaman, there's a river. He got delivered and restored. God reversed the disease. And watch this. This grown man comes out of that river the seventh time, and his skin looks like, it, like, looks like he had just been born. God is so powerful. Not only can he cure what's been a problem for years, but he can also take you back to before the problem ever happened. Some of you has been, you've been bound by drugs, alcohol, and everything else, and you shouldn't look how you look. But when you came to the river and you gave it all to God, he took you back. Now, you've been through some things, but you don't smell or look like what you've been through because God knows what to do with Naaman's. God knows how to take us through some things. That's called exceedingly, abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Also, I want, I, want, I want to say this. This is pointing toward Jesus saying, Except a man be born again through water and spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Jordan was the gateway to promise. Naaman's baptism was an illustration of our baptism into Christ. Because Jesus' name, the name of Jesus, Jesus and his name will become the bridge between the Gentiles and God. I'm thankful for a name today. And I love what Galatians says. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew, there's neither Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Naaman, there is a river. Not only was Naaman healed physically, but he was also healed spiritually. How do I know that? Because in the middle of verse 15, he says, But now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Oh, now I know. Okay, my man done changed his statement. A few verses earlier, he said, I hope that his God would deliver me. And now he's saying, Oh, there is no other God. There is no other hope. There is no other. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know now because he's done something in my life. 2 Kings 5 and 17. Then Naaman said, if not, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. He said, watch this, the dirt I didn't want to go down in, Jordan, give me two loads of it and two mules because I'm carrying this dirt back with me. I'm going to build an altar so that I can worship the only true God. That's why I love new converts. Who would have ever thought, give me some dirt now from where I just went down and let me take it with me because I want to tell everybody, this was my life, but God did us something. Everywhere I go, I want to make a pile of dirt and say, this was my life. But God did something. 
Why did Naaman want to do that? Because when God delivers you like this, when he takes away your leprosy, when he reverses something that's been messing with you for days, months, years, and decades, and you realize it's not a joke anymore, that God in the river is real, then you'll start wanting to build altars and say, I never want to go back to the way that it was. And there's another verse that I want to close with. Luke 4 and 27. And there were many lepers. This is New Testament now. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is talking. And he said there were many folks like Naaman in Israel. But none of those folks in Israel who are my people got healed from their leprosy except a foreigner by the name of Naaman. What is he saying? He's saying you can be a part of the people of God and never see God work in your life. He's saying you can attend church every week. You can be an Israelite and a leper at the same time. I need a river. Because pain is real and hurt is real and life is real. And when it hits, it turns ugly in my life. And there's moments that I just need a river. There's moments that I just need restoration. And there are Naamans here right now. There are Naamans here that people would have looked at their life and said they'll never get out of that. Their leprosy is too bad. Cancel them out. Don't reach for them. And it, they down, but they so low we can't get to them. And if some of, the, some of those Naamans told you their story today, your jaw would drop to the ground. There was a river. One of the most significant statements in the Bible is that nothing is impossible with God. And when we run out of human solutions and we run out of human resolutions and we're in the middle of dilemmas in our life, there is good news. As long as we still got breath, there is a river and God is able. When the doctors say there's no cure, there is a river. When your friends say the problem can never be solved, there is a river. Let's stand. When that relationship look like, looks like it can never be healed, there's a river. So you hear me today and I'm going to prophesy to somebody. Until God gives the last word, you have not heard the last word just yet. No matter how many people think that you're done, no matter how many people have given up on you, don't you dare quit. Don't you give up. Don't you throw in the towel. You're going to make it. You're going to get out of it. God is for you. Naaman, there is a river.